If you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. Um, you can do that on your uh, Kindle, iPad, iPhone, whatever uh, book. If you don't have any of those options with you, I just suggest that you grab one of these. There should be one of these around you. So on page 677 in this Bible is where we're going to start. Page 677, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're going to study, continue our study of the Beatitudes from Matthew 5. Uh, you know, this week, this month, um, the end of May, 1st of June, I realized this week, because I heard a story on the news, is when the dictionaries typically add new words every year in the middle of the year. They announce what new words will be added to the dictionary. And when this happens, it typically makes news. Uh, for instance, late last spring, this time last year, Merriam-Webster announced the addition of words that you probably have taken for granted and maybe use every day. Words like selfie was just added to the dictionary last, last year. Uh, the word hashtag was just added last year, uh, crowdfunding, maybe you've heard that, and uh, freegan, the word freegan. Everybody hear the word freegan? You know what freegan is? It's somebody who eats only food that they salvage from dumpsters, trash cans, cafeteria trays. they trying to get free food, trying to reduce the impact on the environment of uh, farming and growing food, so they eat only free food. Sounds weird to me, but I know maybe there's a freegan in here. If, if you are, you're welcome here. I just want you to know you'll be accepted here. Well, the website, Merriam-Webster's website, also has an area where you can suggest words that should be added next year when they do this. And so um, some of the nominees, I I looked at this page this week as I heard this news story. I looked at the page, and some of these words are a little different. There's the word internect. The word internect is a contraction that means to connect to the internect. So you might say, my stupid iPad won't internect. That's a word that somebody suggested. There's the word uh, bestie. Most of you know what this means, but it's not in the dictionary. Bestie is, you know, your best friend. It's your BFF. It's your lifetime, lifetime uh, friend, uh, at least for now, right? It's your bestie. Um, some people have several besties. They post pictures all the time of this is me and my bestie, and then this is me and my bestie. And like, really, can you only have one bestie? I thought, but um, nerdity, the word nerdity is the degree to which you are a nerd, So, for example, I might use in a sentence, her extensive knowledge of both the Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter franchises showed that she exhibited the highest levels of nerdity. Might use that in a sentence, right? And finally, there's this word. This was actually a suggestion. This is actually a word, brony. Does anybody know what brony is? Anybody ever heard this word? This is a real thing. I found out this week. It's scary. Brony is an adult male who is a fan of the My Little Pony franchise. This is a real thing. What? Yeah, I know. So, for instance, I might say, Cameron Sprinkle is a self-confessed brony, and his favorite is Fluttershy. So, if you didn't know that, you can ask Cameron about that next week when he's back. Um, But there's one word that I see floating around that I've heard used that I would like to suggest be added to the dictionary, and it's this word, phopology. Phopology. Anybody heard this word? You can probably tell by looking at it what it means. It's a fake apology. A phony apology. Uh, you may not have heard the word used before, but you know what they are. You've probably had a phopology in the last week. It's something like this. I'm sorry you were offended by what I did. I'm sorry you misunderstood the words that I used. I'm sorry you had to see that. You know, the concept goes by several different words. Maybe you've heard of an unpology, a non-apology apology. Maybe you even used, sorry, I'm not sorry. You know, but the idea is the same. It's, it's not, I'm sorry for what I did, but I'm sorry for the consequences of what I did. Like, right? It's like, I'm sorry I got caught. Uh, and many of us have a hard time, the truth is, taking responsibility 
for our actions and being sorry when we should. We do. A lot of us have a hard time being sorry when we should be sorry. On the other hand, some of us feel guilty even when we shouldn't feel guilty. So, for instance, you're taking a vacation day, and you're out in the middle of the day, and you run into somebody you know, and you think, I've got to come up with an excuse why I should be here. And then you realize, like, I'm on a vacation day. It's okay for me to be at Meijer in the middle of the day. I don't need to explain myself to this person. Or, you know, you get... uh, Maybe you're a healthy person and you eat healthy all the time and you try to exercise and then uh, a friend sees you at a restaurant eating a cheeseburger and an ice cream cone and you're like, I've got to come up with an explanation for that. You feel guilty about that. And some of us who are type A's, we feel guilty just like lounging on the couch on a Sunday afternoon. Isn't there something we could be doing? So many of us feel bad when we shouldn't feel bad. Others of us don't feel bad or, you know, don't feel bad when we should feel bad. But today what I want to talk about is how to appropriately feel bad when you should feel bad. I want to talk about what it means to mourn our condition. Now, why do I want to talk about that? Well, because Jesus says it's one of the key ingredients to leading the blessed life. And so we're in week two of this series called Beautiful. And if you remember last week, we're studying eight statements that Jesus made at the beginning of what's probably become his most famous sermon. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's in the book of Matthew, chapter five. He starts off with eight statements of blessing. And we often know these statements as the Beatitudes because the the Latin root for the word Beatitude is the word Beatus. It it means blessed in Latin, and that's where we get the English word beautiful, and that's where we got the name of the series, beautiful, and so that's what that's all about. And we, we said last week that many of the people who sat down and listened to the Sermon on the Mount wouldn't have been the religious elite. They They weren't the the rulers, they weren't the leaders of the temple, they weren't the people in charge. There, there were a lot of common people that were flocking to hear what Jesus had to say. They were the laborers, the fishermen, they, they were the out crowd. They weren't really the in crowd. And as Jesus taught about this kingdom, he taught about it being a place where people could experience God firsthand. They could enjoy the benefits of his favor. And it, it wasn't a kingdom for a faraway place in a distant time. It was a kingdom for right here and right now. And he, Jesus himself, said he was here to herald the arrival of this kingdom. And so naturally, everybody wanted to know who gets in. Who gets to be a part of this kingdom? And we talked about that there would have been a group of people, some of the religious elite and some other people, who would have been there with their checklist, right? They, they had the things that I have to do, and if I do this, and if I do this, and if I do this, I'm in. And so last week, we recounted the first words of Jesus in this sermon as a hush came over the crowd. They waited for him to talk about this kingdom and who gets to get in, and he said this, Matthew 5, 3, he said, blessed are, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the crowd hearing that may have been stunned. I mean, it was most likely not what most of them expected to hear because if you're going to have your checklist of here's all the things I've done uh, that make me good, that make me worthy of getting into the kingdom of heaven, probably poor in spirit was not on that list anywhere, right? But if they thought about it for a minute, they would have remembered another statement that God had made several hundred years earlier through the prophet Isaiah. And many of the people in the crowd would have known this, would have uh, maybe even memorized it, would have heard it growing up from the book of Isaiah, uh, where God says through the prophet Isaiah, these are the ones I look on with favor. Remember the word blessed can also mean experience the favor of God. These are the ones we look on, I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. That's, that's the poor in spirit, humble, contrite in spirit. 
And so we talked about the poor in spirit last week. If you missed that, go to genesischurch.me, get the podcast, listen to it this week, because it really sets the foundation for this whole eight-week series. But then Jesus continued, and that's the, the scripture we're going to uh, focus on today is Matthew 5, 4. He says this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And once again, this probably would have caught people off guard, because again, when you think about who is really blessed in this life, you don't always think about mourning as a place that we're blessed, right? You don't think about sadness. You don't think about grief. Again, we talked last week about these two different kinds of blessing statements that were around in the first century, and there would have been uh, blessing statements of instruction, things that we see in in Proverbs sometimes, like blessed is he who obeys. Uh, Blessed are those who are generous. And and our checklisters would have been waiting to hear those statements, like I've got this, okay? This is going to be me. I'm going to earn my way into the kingdom. But Jesus instead, uh, author John Ortberg says, uses what's called a statement of surprise, where he kind of flips the world upside down. Jesus is so brilliant at doing this, but he says, you know, blessed are those who mourn. And so the religious elite of the day, they taught with the statements of instruction. Well, heck, a lot of pastors today teach with statements of instruction. Hey, if you want to be part of the kingdom, you need to do this and you need to do that. You need to make sure that you got this all together. And, um, but that's not what Jesus did. He used these statements of surprise. Now, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, when you read that statement, when you hear that statement, I don't think he's necessarily talking about people who mourn loss, who mourn uh, in grief. Now, here's why. I know that the loss of a loved one can be a really difficult time for all of us. Uh, The loss of a loved one can cause people to to question God. God, where were you? God, if you're really great and you're really powerful, why why do you let things like this happen? And especially if it's someone we're close to, if it's a a close friend or family member, someone who meant a lot to us in life, um, it can cause deep grief, right? And especially if we're Christians. If we're Christians and we don't know where our loved one, where they stood in their faith and where they'll end up, I mean, it's going to lead to lots of grief and mourning. And I think scripture has all kinds of promises for people who are in that situation. I mean, the book of Revelation talks about a day that's coming, a coming kingdom. Not the kingdom Jesus is talking about, but a coming kingdom, a new heaven and a new earth where we'll have no more death and no more mourning and no more crying or pain and a day when God will be there to wipe away every tear from our eyes, that that every moment of sadness or grief on earth will be redeemed and turned into something beautiful. And if you've experienced loss, I just want you to know and and understand that God knows your sorrow. He, He knows your pain. Scripture says that he has bottled every tear and kept track of them. That, that he's on your side. And I hope you hear that this morning. But I don't think that's what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are those who mourn. Although our God's big enough to make that statement mean two different things. But, but the Greek word that Matthew uses here when he translates this, the Greek word is the word pentheo. Pentheo means sorrow and grief. But there are at least, at least nine different words in the Greek for that we translate to mean grief or sorrow or mourning. This pentheo is the deepest. It's the most heartfelt of all of them. And so it's translated as mourning. So the word mourning means a deep inner agony. And so what is that over? If it's not over grief, if it's not over loss here on earth, uh, what is really the deepest form of grief? Well, I think what we'll see as we look at this passage is Jesus is talking about people who mourn over our sin. We mourn over our condition. We mourn over sin. Now, are you someone who mourns over sin? Are are you sorry when you should be sorry? Do you feel appropriately bad when you should feel bad? And not in a way that drives you to guilt or shame, but in a way that drives you closer 
to your heavenly father. It's hard to mourn sin in our culture today. The word, very word sin has become a word that's interpreted as judgment, hate, bigotry. If you say that I sin, you must hate me and everybody who's like me. Uh, that word has just become, outside of church, it's become uh, almost a no-no word. Nobody uses it anymore. We'd much rather talk about indiscretions. We'd rather talk about lacks of judgment. Uh, mistakes were made, Right? I did not have sexual relations with that woman. <laughs> Anybody remember the phopology that went with that? Uh, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is, right? We don't talk about sin, but we all make mistakes, right? And as long as my actions don't directly harm another person, why not live and let live? You know, I'm not a terrorist or an axe murderer, so what's the big deal? I mean, don't, don't we kind of rate ourselves like that? Don't we kind of rate sin like... If, if you were to take a poll of all of society, I think what you'd see is like terrorist, murderer, uh, people who are intolerant of other people's beliefs, and then everybody else, every other sin in all of culture is, is okay, it's fine. But, but Jesus doesn't rate sin. He doesn't do that. He never says, never once says, hey, don't worry if you just gossip. If that's your only sin, don't worry about that. He never says, don't worry if you just lie every once in a while. It's okay, it's no big deal, go ahead. He, he never says, don't worry if you're a glutton or don't worry if you, you know, have pride or whatever. He, he never says that. He says, blessed are those who mourn, those who mourn the condition they're in, those who mourn over sin. Now, I want you to see, and I think you'll see as we go through this morning, Jesus is not saying this to beat us down. He really, really wants to build us up. In fact, he says, hey, if you mourn, if you mourn in this way, if you mourn over sin, you will be comforted. I love what pastor and author John MacArthur says. He says, the mark of a mature life is not sinlessness, which is reserved for heaven, but growing aware of sinfulness. My uh, friend and mentor, Dan Spader, says it this way. He says, as you mature, you will not become sinless, but you should sin less. So what does it mean to mourn over sin? Well, I think there's three things I want to cover this morning in the time that we have. First, I think we need to mourn over the sin that we commit. We mourn over sin that we commit. Most of our sin affects other people. And that's usually what we focus on when we talk about sin. I think Jesus wants to remind us through here that what our sin does to other people is not the most important point. It's, it's bad when we hurt people with our sin. It's bad when we do something to hurt someone's feelings or to hurt their condition. But at the heart of my sin is what I believe about God and how I treat him. You know, one of the greatest men in ancient Israel was a man by the name of David, King David. You probably, even if you haven't been around church very long, if you don't ever read your Bible, you probably know a lot of David's story. You know that he killed Goliath. Uh, you probably know that he was king of Israel. And if you know anything at all about his story, you may know that he sinned in a way that looks most of us look like rank amateurs. All right, David, uh, for instance, married a, uh, had, had an affair, seduced a woman named Bathsheba. Now, Bathsheba was a, friend, uh, was a wife of David's good friend Uriah, who also happened to be one of his most loyal army officers. He was one of David's most important 30. They call him 30 mighty men. Uriah was on that list. Um, uh, he was one of David's brave soldiers. And while Uriah was out fighting a battle to expand David's kingdom, David has an affair with his wife. Well, Bathsheba becomes pregnant, and so when Uriah uh, comes back home from the battlefield, David tries to deceive him into making him believe that the baby is Uriah's twice. Uriah doesn't fall for it, and so uh, when Uriah is sent back to the battle lines, David has him uses his power as commander-in-chief to have him sent right to the front of the battle, 
have the army charge ahead, and then everybody else withdraw so that Uriah would be killed to cover up what he's done. He marries Bathsheba, takes her as his own wife. You see, most of us can't really touch that kind of sin. Well, a year goes by, and David is apparently unmoved by his indiscretion, right? And so God sends a prophet, a man by the name of Nathan, to confront his good friend David. Through the words of a good friend, David is finally convicted, and he's heartbroken over his sin, which was a great reminder for me this week. Do you have a Nathan in your life? Do you have somebody that has permission to point out where you've gone off track? to point out sin in your life? Do you have somebody you can count on to tell you when you ventured off the path? If not, you need to get somebody. You need to have a Nathan in your life. Scripture clearly says that self-awareness, awareness of sin, is the product of biblical community. Hebrews, uh, the writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 3, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. See, sin is about us turning away from God, right? It's about our relationship with God. It's not about other people. Verse 13 says, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. When is it called today? Today. You know, tomorrow will be called today. Tomorrow, right? so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So what the author is saying is sin is deceitful. Like you, are, you and I are easily deceived. We need someone outside of our life who can point that out. I have two or three guys in my life that know everything about me. They know what I do. They know what I struggle with. They know my history. And I've not always been like that. I never wanted that kind of accountability. But what I've found is that if I want to live the blessed life, I have to know two or three people that are always willing to call me out when I'm doing something wrong. And so there is not a thing in here that you could find out that if you went to Ben or Steve in my life, they wouldn't already know. Uh, You'd say, hey, Steve, you know what I got on you, but I can't wait. Go ahead, tell me, because I got a couple guys in my life. They know all about it. And uh, like I said, I haven't always wanted that. It's, makes, it's uncomfortable for me to have people who know all of my junk. But I'm telling you, there is no greater feeling of freedom than to know that I've got no secrets. And if you want the blessed life, that's a way to get that accountability. It's like if you're, you're ever eating in a restaurant, you get a little schmutz on your cheek. I was eating this weekend. I was with a bunch of friends. And um, you can tell who your real friends are in this situation. I was eating bratwurst. And I got a big clump of mustard on my cheek. I could feel it. And so I wiped it off. And then one of my buddies goes, hey, Steve, you got some mustard on your cheek. That, that takes a real friend to say that, right? So I, you know, like, and I do it like that. Did I get it? And uh, he said, no, nope, still there. So you do it again. And, and usually at that point, it's when they say, yeah, you're good, right? But he didn't. He said, no, it's still there. Do you want me to get? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I will take care of it. But, you know, then you grab the napkin and you do, and now, now how am I? And when they say you're good, you know you're good, right? Because you've got a good friend, you know that they'll do that for you. You need that person to tell you you've got some schmutz on your face, in your real life. So anyway, David does that, or Nathan does that for David. Now, let me just say this too. That's one of the reasons we believe in the power of connection groups here at Genesis Church. They're a safe place for you to connect with other believers and to build those friendships where maybe in the group that doesn't happen, but you build those friendships with people that you know, hey, that's a person I want to do life with. That's a person that can hold me accountable in the long run. And hopefully you build those relationships. But if you're going to do it, you can't just, you can't just be a part of the group. You've got to participate. You got to talk. You got to be in on the discussion because that's the only way to build those kind of relationships. Well, Nathan has that with David. 
And so he confronts him, and and David is heartbroken over his sin. And as a result, what we see is he writes a beautiful song of confession that has been captured for us. It's the 51st Psalm in our Bible. And he writes something really illuminating. And I want you to take a look at this. Psalm 51.4 says this. He's writing to God, and he says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Think about that for a minute. How can you sleep with someone else's wife, have them killed to cover it up, and then take them as your own wife and say to God, only against you have I sinned? I think Uriah might have something to say about that if he were still around. I think Bathsheba might have something to say about that. But I don't think that what David's saying is that his sin hasn't hurt other people. I think David believed that he had hurt other people through his sin. But instead, more than anything, David understands that the person, the the one who is most hurt by our sin is God. And for David, he understood that that God's the one that gave him the power to kill Goliath. God's the one who made him king of Israel, anointed him king of Israel. He protected him from King Saul when King Saul was trying to pursue David through the wilderness. And and David understood that by choosing to sin, he had rejected God. That's what sin is. It's whatever I do that's a rejection of God. The, The God who made me, the God who sustains me, the God who blesses me, the God who loves me. Sin is deciding, I'm in charge today, God, not you. I'm going to do what I want to do. I wonder over the last week, what have you done that clearly shouts, I'm in charge of my life? What have you done in the past week that puts your desires, your wants, your, yourself before God? Maybe it was something you did, something you said. Maybe it was something you saw, something you thought. That's sin. It doesn't have to be a big deal. It doesn't have to hurt anyone else. But if it separates you from God. Ephesians 4.30 reminds us that we should not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And you read that, and it's sometimes hard to grasp that God can really be grieved by what we do. He can be affected. I mean, I'm just, God's big and powerful and almighty, and I'm just little old me. And something I do can grieve God's Holy Spirit, can have an effect on him. But we can. We can grieve God. I mean, If you're a parent, you know that your children are going to make mistakes. They're going to make poor decisions that sometimes have no effect on you. They don't affect the way you live your life. They don't affect how people view you. But you know it was a poor choice, and it's going to harm them, and you're grieved over that. And that's how God feels when we make mistakes. It may not affect him at all. It doesn't affect his eternity, right? But he knows it affects ours. We can grieve God. But those who mourn don't just mourn over the sin they commit. They mourn over what they don't do as well. So just as there are sins of commission, there are sins of omission. And so those who mourn, mourn over the sins of omission. Well, some of us might get really easily convicted about the things we do. Most of us don't worry too much about the things we don't do, but uh, most of us don't mourn our sins of omission. But like many relationships, what we don't do often has a bigger impact than what we do do, right? And I know guys, especially, we're good at sins of omission. We often get in trouble for what we don't do. It's not what we do with the garbage. It's what we don't do with the garbage, right? It's not what we do with the toilet seat. It's what we don't do with the toilet seat, right? It's not what we do for our anniversary. You get the picture. When it comes to sins of omission... 
we're really good at looking, glossing over those. But for me, um, my sin of omission is I often, much more often than I want to admit, neglect God. I, I neglect to seek his input. I neglect, I forget to pray. I forget to talk to God. How many of you remember a couple years ago, there was a Canadian airline called WestJet that put out a video and it was uh, filmed at one of their gates around Christmas time. And they had a big kiosk there. And they had a TV with Santa Claus on it. And uh, it had a camera. And they were talking to people who were getting ready to board a plane and asking them what they want for Christmas. Do you remember this? Everybody remember this video? And so what they did, they were at this uh, gate in Toronto, I think. And they were um, asking people, what do you want for Christmas? And they were recording all this, unbeknownst to the passengers on this plane. But they were asking people, what do you want for Christmas? And there are some really great uh, stories. There was one lady who wanted a digital camera so she could take pictures of her kids. She didn't have a way to capture those memories. And then there was a, a lady who wanted an airplane ticket for her mom so she could fly home and be there for Christmas. And then there was a, a couple that wanted a big screen TV. And in the midst of all that, there's a guy who said, well, what I really need is socks and underwear. You know? And so they're capturing all this. What, they did, what the passengers didn't know was that once they got on their flight, the employees of WestJet at their destination were out shopping and they were out buying all of these gifts. And so these passengers get off the plane, they go down to baggage claim and the baggage claim opens up and the belt starts moving. And instead of their luggage coming off, what's happening is they get these packages coming off with their names on them. And then one at a time, there's a lady opens up her digital camera and starts crying. Oh, I can take pictures now. And another lady opens up an envelope, and there's a plane ticket for her mom to come home. And then the couple opens up their big screen TV, and then there's the guy opening up his box, and he's got his socks and underwear. And I saw that video again this week, and I, I was laughing at it, thinking, why in the world did he ask for socks and underwear? I mean, you see all these people, what they're asking. I mean, it's easy to tell afterwards, right? Obviously, he should have asked for something much bigger. And then I realized this week, I, I, I don't know if God told me this or if it was from listening to other pastors that have brought similar concepts to my mind, but I realized, Steve, that's a perfect picture of your prayer life. Like people all around you are getting these incredible blessings. I'm not talking about monetary blessings or financial or you know, getting things, but they're getting all these blessings. And here you're asking for the spiritual equivalent of socks and underwear. And I'm often neglectful in my prayer life, and that's a sin of omission. I can't imagine how many times in my life I've neglected God. I mean, how often have I disobeyed him? How often have I failed to ask his opinion when he clearly has one? How many times have I ignored his presence? How many times have I failed to do something for one of his children? I think those who mourn get this. They understand there's so much more they could have done that they didn't do. And not that you can earn God's love through your actions, but those who mourn understand that they've missed the target. That God set this target out for us, and whether intentionally or unintentionally, we have missed it in so many ways. So those who mourn, I think they mourn the sin they commit. They mourn sins of omission. And finally, those who mourn, mourn over the sin of the world. Go ahead and turn on the news. I dare you. Turn, open up your Twitter feed. There, it probably won't take you two or three minutes to find a story that reminds you that we live in a broken, sin-soaked world. I mean, Ferguson, Baltimore, Gaza, Iraq, Ukraine, Syria, Duggars, McKinney, Texas. The list just goes on and on and on. And in all of these situations, we can all find somebody at fault. We can all look at the situation and go, well, he shouldn't have done this and they shouldn't have done that. And we can, we can all find people to blame. But the truth is, at the heart of every one of these situations is sin. It's the sinfulness of the world. None of us is perfect. 
And, and, but all of us have an instinct to react when we hear stories like this, right? We'll hear one of these stories that gets, uh, really grabs a hold of our heart, and we want to react. But there is a godly way to react, and there is an ungodly way to react. And so what do you do when you hear these stories? Do you post an angry rant on Facebook? I mean, do you get angry about it and put something out there that's just like, well, they shouldn't have, they need to know better. That guy's a trained professional. He ought to, right? We do that. Or maybe, like sometimes I'm inclined to just ignore it. It's going to go away. Can't happen here. Don't have to worry about that. Or does it break your heart? Do you mourn over it? Do you mourn over the homeless man that stands on the corner on your way to work with the sign? Or you just silently say in your breath, that guy ought to get a job. Do you mourn over the fact that there are young ladies that feel like they should have abortions? Or do you just yell at them? Do you mourn over the drug addicts and the convicts and the rejects? Because I think God does. God mourns over those people. The fact that those, those people are around there, it breaks God's heart. What can we do about that? Well, I was reading about mourning this week as I was preparing for this message, and I, I found a lot of psychological advice. Uh, most of what you see if you search um, mourning or how to mourn will be from psychologists, psychiatrists that tell you about mourning, grieving. But I, I found this quote from this uh, psychologist. I'd never heard of him before. His name is Alan Wolfelt. But I love what he said. He said, mourning is when you take grief you have on the inside and express it outside of yourself. I mean, how good is that to think about this grief, this this feeling that we have inside of, of guilt or um, you know, feeling bad and we go express it outside of ourselves. So maybe if you want to be one who mourns, there's an action associated with that. Maybe for those of us who mourn, maybe your action today is to find that thing you're passionate about, that, that thing that sets your heart on fire, that new story that gets your heart racing, that gets your head pounding and, and go do something about it. Maybe you need to volunteer to serve with the homeless or to help the addicts or to provide counseling or help to those in need. You know, look at the sin of the world and mourn it and mourn it actively. Don't be content to rant against it or to ignore it. Maybe your mourning leads you to pray. I mean, that might be the absolute best thing you can do when the, when the things of the world that break our heart align with the things that break God's heart and we earnestly and fervently start praying about those things and start seeking God's will and not ignoring him, but asking him, God, what do you want me to do about that? I believe big things can happen. And I believe those who mourn will be comforted. I I think those of us who mourn, uh, who want to be people who mourn, we mourn, we pray like King David prayed. In Psalm 139, he prayed, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Uh, David and what he did, if somebody like David, who has all of that background, isn't afraid to pray that prayer, search my heart, oh God, see if there's any offensive way in me. Do you think there's an offensive way in David? Is there an offensive way in you and in me? I want God to show me that. Those who mourn confess their sin to God. They're not afraid to say, God, I'm sorry. In that situation, I was wrong. He, He knows, he already knows, but they'll also confess their sin to another person. They admit their wrongs and their failures. They are 100% known. And it is so scary to have somebody else who knows everything about you because you're going to think that they're going to judge you, that they're going to uh, tell other people what they know about you, but the right person won't do that. The right person will be as close to a godly character as you can find who will be like God who says, hey, my grace is sufficient for you. John 
1 John 1, 9 says, if, he, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so when we do those things, when we pray, search my heart, and we confess our sin to God, and we confess our sin to another person, you find a God who is full of grace. You find a God who, as the prophet Micah wrote, he said this about God. He said, you do not stay angry forever, but delight to show your mercy. You will ha- again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. I don't know what you're mourning today. I don't know what the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you in the last half an hour, in the last week. If it's about a sin that you've committed or a sin of omission or maybe it's about something in the world, the sins of the world, but I want you to hear today the good news from Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. If you're in Christ, your sin has already been forgiven. If you're not in Christ, I want you to know that Jesus went to the cross 2,000 years ago to pay the price for every sin you have already committed, you're committing now, and you will commit in the future. Every sin, past, present, and future, the price has already been paid. The battle is already won. Jesus came to announce his kingdom. And it's a kingdom where people experience God personally and enjoy the wonder of God's favor. It's a beautiful, blessed life, and it's available to all of us today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for that truth. I am uh, so glad that you sent your son to pay the price for my sin. And God, I just know and I confess right now and here in front of you that I am going to mess up again. I'm going to sin again. I'm going to make more mistakes. I'm going to offend more people. I'm going to do things that grieve your Holy Spirit. And I just pray right now that I'd be convicted of those things. And I pray for every person in this room that we would have somebody in our life who's not afraid to point that out. Lord, I pray for every person in this room that we could see your majesty. We see how great and how big and how powerful you are. And at the same time, how much you care about the details of our lives and how much you look down on us and you have grace for all of us. That even though we're just sinful people, God, that your grace has already paid for that. It's already covered that. That you will find us just as we are and take us to a greater place. You want to introduce us to this new kingdom, this kingdom with God's favor where it rests on his people. And I'm just so thankful for that today. Lord, as we come before you now in a time of worship through song, I just pray that you would bring that into our heart. Set that word on our heart. Help us to to make it permanent part of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, as the band comes up and um, we sing one more song, I'd love for you to just stand and, and sing with them.